Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Tonight we come to one of the most awesome books in the Bible, and also in many ways one of the most difficult to interpret, and that is the book of Hebrews. I've often said with uh, complete truthfulness, I would rather interpret the book of Revelation than I would the book of Hebrews, because the book of Hebrews is quite difficult uh, in a number of crucial places. And so in preparation for our study this evening, let me read four texts with you. You follow along with me. In your Bible, and I think it'll give you kind of the flow of the book and also show you where a couple of these theological um, landmines are. And so, first of all, just take the first four verses of chapter one, Hebrews one, one through four. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had set uh, by himself, purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And that passage right there, of course, would alert you that the book of Hebrews is going to talk about the wonder and the glory and the majesty and the awesomeness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, go with me to chapter 5 and look with me at verse 11. Chapter 5, verse 11. He's talking about Melchizedek and his priesthood. And he says, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you. Again, the first principles of the oracles are the sayings of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of washings, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. And now here is the landmine. For it is impossible for those who once were enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. Go with me to chapter 10 and look at verse 26. Here is another landmine in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 10, verse 26. For if we sin willfully... After we have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but 
a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and exalted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then one final text that is the outline that concludes our study. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. And the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls." Now, if you look at the very first page of the handout this evening, you'll notice that we're now entering into a summary of Hebrews, the general epistles, and the book of Revelation, the last quarter of our New Testament. Hebrews is probably an epistle, but most of the time uh, it is not included with the general epistles. They usually start with James. But these books do kind of hang together as a uh, culmination and as a conclusion to our New Testament. So what I've done for you on the first page is give you each of the books, their number of chapters, uh, the author, the theme, place of writing, date of writing, and recipients. And so I think it would be valuable to note at least the book and its theme. So, for example, Hebrews, we're going to see the theme is go on to maturity. James, a faith that works. First Peter, suffering unto glory. Second Peter, beware of false prophets. First John, joy and fellowship with God. Second John, truth and love in balance. Third John, four men and their reputation. Jude, fight for the faith. And Revelation, the Lamb upon the throne. And so that is a nice encapsuling of what the themes are of these books. If you look on page two, I've given you a timeline that will allow you to see where these books, the book of Hebrews, the general epistles, and Revelation, fit into the historical chronology of the, um, the first century. And so you'll notice that uh, First Peter, Second Peter, maybe Hebrews, possibly Jude, were written about the time of Paul's second Roman imprisonment. You will see, though, that First and Second and Third John and Revelation will be written much later, according to most uh, traditions and most Bible scholars, being at the end of the first century. And so the book of Hebrews is going to be dated, as we'll see in a moment, around 65 to 67. I do think we have to argue um, rather strongly that it was written before A.D. 70. Because the author of Hebrews talks about the sacrificial system in the present tense. And, of course, the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. The sacrificial system came to an end. And so I think there's good reason for seeing the book of Hebrews as being written before the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So perhaps somewhere around 65 to 67 A.D. 
Well, if you go to page three, you'll see a summation then of the book of Hebrews. It's theme, Jesus Christ, God's very best. Because he is God's best, you press on into Christ unto maturity. Uh, the author is unknown. I'm raising the possibility, as my good friend David Allen argues, that it might have been Luke. There is no debate that it is a Jewish audience of some kind uh, that is being addressed. Date of writing, 65 to 67, as I mentioned a moment ago. Place of writing, well, we don't know, but Rome is definitely a possibility. Purpose for writing, well, to exhort, to encourage this Jewish audience to go on in the better way made possible in Jesus Christ, who is God's final and God's climactic revelation. In other words, Hebrews makes it clear. God has spoken and God's not speaking again. He has spoken a final climactic word in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Page four provides for you a structural chart of the book, again, highlighting at the top uh, major issues such as author, date and theme. And then you notice in the body of the chart itself, we point out that chapter one, verse five through chapter four, verse 13 speaks about the fact that Christ is better in his person. And yes, he is better than the prophets, the angels, Moses, Joshua, the Sabbath. Secondly, in 4.14 through 10.18, we see that he is better in his priesthood. For he is greater than earthly priests, greater than the Aaronic priesthood, greater than the Old Covenant, greater than the animal sacrifices, greater than the daily offerings. And because he is better in his person, and because he is better in his priesthood, then he is also better in his pattern. And therefore, let us have, in chapter 10, boldness to enter into the holiest place. Chapter 11, Faith to trust God. Chapter 12, Jesus is our example. And chapter 13, love to bless one another or to bless others. And so perhaps we could say that chapter 4, verse 14 is the key verse to the book. Seeing we have a great high priest, let us hold fast, stay with our confession, and as a result, move on into maturity. In other words, as is often the case with Paul's writings, what we are to believe is emphasized in the first part of the book, and how we are to live is emphasized in the latter part of the book. And if you were noting a moment ago, when I read from chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 10, I was reading from two of what are known as the five warning passages in Hebrews. And I've listed them for you at the bottom of this page. In fact, when I used to teach survey of the New Testament... And we came to the book of Hebrews. I told my students I expected them to know what were the five warning passages in Hebrews, at least their address. So you see it there in chapter 2, 1 through 4, 3, 7 through 4, 13, 5, 11 through 6, 20, 10, 19 through 39, and 12, 14 through 29. And if you wanted to give each of them a theme, we could say, don't drift and don't doubt. Don't grow dull, don't despise, and don't defy. And all of that in relationship to God's completed, perfect revelation of himself in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so alongside the book of Revelation, no book in the Bible is more Christ-honoring and Christocentric than is the book of Hebrews. Well, let's then move to talk about our background material. And I have a lot on authorship, though I'm not going to spend all of my time through it. Some of it I will just leave for you to read uh, on your own. But beginning with the authorship, top of page five, there is no consensus concerning the author of Hebrews. The book itself is anonymous. Uh, the text makes no direct reference to the author. There is no explicit evidence as to who the author might be other than 
At the very end of the book, there is a personal pronoun whereby the author refers to himself, and he does so in the masculine. And therefore, there is no reason to say, as some liberal scholars, such as uh, Adolf von Harnack, uh, that Priscilla was the author of the book of Hebrews. I would have no problem uh, if a woman did author a book of the Bible, but the uh, uh, internal evidence is simply overwhelming based upon the use of that pronoun alone that the author indeed was a man. So that's really the only thing we can say. I think we can also say this. He must have been a Jew because this is the most Jewish book in the New Testament. He was very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, very familiar with the sacrificial system, very familiar with practices of first century Jews. And so when you put that together and you look at church history, here are the following candidates. And I'm giving you the the big five as to who have been set forth as possible authors of the book of Hebrews. First of all is Paul. And uh, I would quickly add that that is to this day the view of the Roman Catholic Church. And I now know it is also the view of uh, David Allen Black, who teaches at uh, Southeastern Seminary. And there are some good reasons for affirming that perhaps Paul is the author. Uh, Many have argued for these following four reasons. Number one, faith is a very important topic in this book, as it is in the writings of Paul. Secondly, the writer was associated with Timothy, as, of course, was Paul. Thirdly, and this is rather weighty. Habakkuk 2.4, which says, the just shall live by faith, is quoted three times in the New Testament. Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, and yes, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 38. Fourthly, there is a strong emphasis on the person and work of Jesus Christ, which you also find, for example, uh, in Philippians 2, Colossians 1, the book of Romans, and so on. However... There are some important elements of the book that do not seem to be Pauline. For example, the author never uses his name, which is quite contrary to Paul's style. Uh, The writer seems to put himself outside of the circle of the New Testament apostles. In fact, it seems to be the case in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, that he is identifying himself as a second-generation believer. And that certainly would not fit the apostle Paul. Also, the style of writing is much more classical than Paul's style. In fact, it's a lot like Luke-Acts. And the stress on the priesthood of Jesus is a theme that is not found in any of the 13 indisputable books written by Paul. And so there's evidence for it. There's evidence against it. A second choice is Silas. Some have maintained that there are similarities between 1 Peter and this letter. And they note that it is most likely that Silas was the secretary, the amanuensis of First Peter. And so a few, but not many, have said Silas may have been the author. Thirdly, Barnabas. Uh, the early father, Tertullian, thought that Barnabas must have been the author. After all, Barnabas was a Levite, Acts 4.36. He would have been, therefore, well-versed in the Old Testament system of worship and sacrifice. Barnabas, by his uh, etymological breakdown of his name, means son of encouragement. And interestingly, the book is full of encouragement, and 1322 of Hebrews makes a specific note of this. And so some of the Pauline ideas and phrases could be explained on the basis that Barnabas was a close associate of Paul. A fourth view has been Apollos. Uh, This was the view of Martin Luther, and interestingly, also the view of W.A. Criswell. Uh, However, there's no early support for this position. In other words, no early church father 
ever said that Apollos was possibly the author of the book. You say, well, why did uh, Luther and why did Christopher say that perhaps it was Apollos? Well, he was gifted in his ability to explain the Old Testament. And that certainly would be a prerequisite for the author of Hebrews. And so they have argued that perhaps Apollos was its author. And then fifthly, Luke. David Allen, who was my classmate at Crystal College, Southwestern Seminary, and the University of Texas at Arlington. Uh, he and I served a church together for three years in Dallas and now is the, the dean of the School of Theology at uh, Southwestern. David wrote his doctoral dissertation on the issue of the authorship of Hebrews, something he actually studied uh, for almost 15 years. And so, uh, without any question, uh, he knows more about issues related to authorship than any person I've ever met, whether you agree with his view or not. Uh, he has the most detailed study and analysis of this particular issue. And he has proposed that Luke, and I did not include this in your notes, but you must make a note of this somewhere. He has argued, contrary to majority opinion, that Luke was a Jew, not a Gentile. In fact, I would argue, if the uh, evidence was stronger that Luke was Jewish, I think the overwhelming position today would be that Luke wrote Hebrews. And I think you'll see why in just a moment. But most people have thought that Luke is a Gentile. But um, uh, F.W. Albright... Uh, Bo Rica, I think Martin Hingle, to name three very distinguished New Testament scholars, also believed that Luke was Jewish. And so I would argue that the evidence is not uh, decidedly uh, in favor of the Gentile uh, hypothesis. And so he has argued that Luke, being a Jew, is author of Hebrews, and that furthermore he wrote to the many former priests who had become obedient to the faith as recorded in Acts chapter 6, and verse 7. Now, there are five lines of argument and then two summations that David makes with respect to, and I want to be fair, almost all the material on page 6, uh, page 7, uh, page 8, and the top of page 9 come from uh, David Allen's dissertation. So I want to give credit to whom credit is due. But he says, first of all, look at the patristic evidence. And David makes two very, I think, telling observations. Clement of Alexandria, who lived from 155 to 220, is quoted in Eusebius as saying, quote, The epistle to the Hebrews is the work of Paul. Well, that doesn't help David's view, does it? Well, I'm not finished reading. It was written to the Hebrews in the Hebrew language, but Luke translated it carefully and published it for the Greeks. And hence, the same style of expression is found in this epistle and in Acts. Now, just hang on to that for a moment. But here comes origin. If ever you, you go to a class somewhere and someone's doing the background of Hebrews, almost without exception, they'll quote origin and say, well, I agree with origin. As to who wrote Hebrews, only God knows. And origin did say that. But he said more than that. And so look at what he actually said in toto or in full. But who wrote the epistle in truth? God knows. The statement of some who have gone before us, though, is that Clement, not Clement of Alexandria, but Clement of the Romans, wrote the epistle. And others that Luke, the author of the gospel and the Acts, wrote it. And so Origen notes early, Clement notes early, that there is strong tradition that Luke had at least some hand in the writing of Hebrews. Now, I'll go ahead and tip my hand. 
I agree with David Allen Black that the book of Hebrews is a reflection of the theology of Paul. But it is in the grammar and syntax and style of Luke. Which, by the way, who was the closest companion uh, to Paul uh, after uh, Timothy? And actually, Timothy and Titus are his sons of the ministry. But his traveling physician and the only one who was still with him at the end of his life in Rome in 2 Timothy 4 is Luke. And so I think you could make a good argument that it is Paul's theology written through the instrumentality of Dr. Luke. Hence, Luke is the author, but Luke is reflecting, as you would expect, the influence of Paul as he writes concerning the uh, superiority of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, what then follows are some arguments also, in addition to this, for Luke and authorship. For example, what are called lexical or word similarities. Interestingly, 53 words unique to Luke Acts and Hebrews in the New Testament. In other words, you find 53 words that are common to these three books that you do not find in any of the other 24 books of the New Testament. Furthermore, there's great similarity in vocabulary in Luke, Acts, and Hebrews to 2nd and 3rd Maccabees, which are extra-biblical writings. And then there is a boatload of stylistic similarities, and I'm not going to bore you with most of this. I'll just highlight a couple of them. Those of you that are Greek hound dogs, you'll like the rest of it. But, for example, number one, there's a near-classical style of the opening four verses of Luke, of Acts, And of Hebrews, they are very, very, very similar. Look over on page 7 and uh, drop down to number 10. The use of the phrase, how much more, is very common to Luke and to Hebrews. Look at number 12. Luke, Acts, and Hebrews make almost exclusive use of the Septuagint, the LXX, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, whereas most of the other authors of the New Testament will utilize a Hebrew text in quoting the Old Testament. Number 13, the employment of quote formulas is very similar in Luke, Acts, and Hebrews. And number 14, B.F. Westcott, a great New Testament scholar, says in his commentary on the Hebrews, and I quote, It has been already seen that the earliest scholars who speak of the epistle notice its likeness in style to the writings of St. Luke. And when every allowance has been made for coincidences, which consist in forms of expression which are found also in the Septuagint or in other writers of the New Testament or in the late, late Greek generally, the likeness is unquestionably Remarkable. Now, understand, Westcott did not argue for Luke and authorship. But Westcott said, I must tell you, the similarity to uh, Luke Acts of Hebrews is singularly remarkable. Top of page 8, there are theological similarities in the way they treat Christology. But also look under angelology. Luke records more instances of angelic activity than any other New Testament writer. And, interestingly... The author of Hebrews is the writer most interested in the theological status of angels. What about history? Well, one cannot help but notice remarkable similarity in uh, historical exposition of Acts 7, the speech of Stephen, and Hebrews 11, 
uh, the Hall of Faith. And these are the two longest expositions of Old Testament history found in the New Testament. In fact, there's nothing else like them at all in any of the other 25 books of the New Testament. Then evidence from discourse analysis. The prologues of both Luke and Hebrews are very similar in structure. Luke and the writer to the Hebrews make use of chiasmus. That is an A, B, B prime, A prime. Don't worry about that kind of arrangement. But those of you that studied discourse analysis would know what I'm talking about. And so David says this. Here's my historical reconstruction. The author of the book, I think he would say, and I agree with him actually, is Luke. The recipient, former Jewish priest. Date of writing, 65 to 67. Place of writing, Rome. Why? Because where is Luke when he is with Paul in 2 Timothy 4? They're in Rome. He is in the Mamertine dungeon. That is Paul expecting his execution, and Luke is with him. Hence, Rome would be a reasonable place of writing. The recipients then, if it was these former Jewish priests who have become converted, then Antioch of Syria would be a reasonable place, or you might even argue his writing back to a priest in Judea. Top of page 9 then, what is the purpose of Luke, Acts, and Hebrews? Well, in a real sense, Hebrews 2, 3, and 4 can be seen as a summary of the entire book of Acts. And so, understand, want to be fair tonight, is David's view a majority view? No. The overwhelming perspective of New Testament scholars is that Luke was a Gentile. And so he is cast out on that basis alone. And from there, they simply go in all sorts of directions, most of them simply arguing whoever wrote it was Jewish. Uh, whoever wrote it had a great understanding of the Old Testament. Uh, and whoever wrote it, we don't know. And that's pretty much how they all conclude. By the way, I'll get into this more next week. Again, those of you at the seminary should be familiar with this. Oh, this is at least a $55 word. The word anti-legomena. You like that word? Anti-legomena. The word anti means against. Legomena means to speak. And so you do need to understand that there were seven books in the early history of the church that were challenged as to whether or not they actually belonged in the Word of God. You say, well, which ones are they? It's real easy. There are seven of them. Just start with Hebrews and leave out the two first books, 1 John and 1 Peter. And you'll have the seven anti-legomena books. They are Hebrews, James, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, Jude, and Revelation. And those seven books were at least questioned or had a question mark by them as to whether or not they should be a part of Scripture. You say, why did they question Hebrews? One very simple reason. They did not know who the author was. And if you remember all the way back in our first or second study, I said to you that one of the criterion or maybe the major criterion of whether or not a book got into the scriptures was, was it written by an apostle or a close associate of an apostle? And since Hebrews is anonymous, they didn't know. And so people put up a a question mark, a, a hesitation, not that there was anything wrong with its content. They simply were not certain that it passed the number one test, an apostle or a close associate of the apostle. But think of all the people that have been offered. Paul, he makes the cut. Silas, he makes the cut. Uh, Barnabas, he makes the cut. Uh, Apollos, he makes the cut. <coughs> Even um, Priscilla and Aquila, <coughs> excuse me, they make the cut. And then, of course, Luke. 
would obviously make the cut as well. And even some have even said maybe John Mark. I don't know anybody other than those seven myself. There may be another hypothesis, but all of those would make the cut of an apostle or a close associate of an apostle. I think one of the reasons the church at Rome uh, was driven very quickly toward uh, Paul was they knew the book belonged. And if Paul wrote it, then that settled the issue. After all, who could question the authorship of uh, if, if Paul was the author? Who could question the uh, legitimacy and the authenticity of the book of Hebrews? Well, I talked to you earlier about the date. The main thing, as I said earlier, was I believe it had to have been written before A.D. 70 because the author gives evidence that the uh, uh, sacrificial system is still in place. Furthermore, if he wanted to deliver a, I mean, a death nail blow to the Jewish sacrificial system, all he would have to do is say, look, guys. God destroyed the temple in A.D. 70. The the sacrifices are over. They're not coming back. And that would have been a great uh, climactic argument. Thank you, Kenny. That would have been a great argument for saying that the uh, sacrificial system was done. But he doesn't do that. He argues that the sacrificial system has been done away with. The sacrificial system needs to move on. The sacrificial system has been complete in Christ. But he doesn't say it's been wiped out. And so I think that would be an evidence. The present tense of the sacrificial system and not noting the destruction of Jerusalem that it would have been written before A.D. 70. And then recipients. Well... There's no question, bottom of page 9, number 3, there's no question that the epistle is Jewish as to its recipients. What kind of Jews? Well, there's some debate here. Some say, A, the recipients were Jewish. Some of them were inclined to remain in or return to Jerusalem. They were well acquainted with the Old Testament and its rituals. B, some have said they must have been Hellenistic Jews, that is, Greek-speaking Jews, because all the quotations of the Old Testament come from the Septuagint, the uh, LXX. Thirdly, some have said, well, maybe he wrote to people in North Africa or or Cyprus, people who had an aesthetic lifestyle similar to the Qumran community, and evidence from Qumran uh, suggests that they did have a highly developed uh, doctrine of angels that would fit very nicely with the thought of the author of Hebrews. Others have said Jews living in Rome, but again, following David, a better suggestion is that they are dwellers in Palestine or Antioch, still involved in temple worship, even though they were believers. Thus, the warning passages would admonish them to stay away from a mindset that believed that Jewish rituals were necessary for salvation and sanctification. Now, here comes this million-dollar question related to those five warning passages. Another question about the recipients that must be faced is the spiritual condition of the community to which the author was writing. And there are three main views here. A, some people believe that they are all believers. In other words, Hebrews is written to a community of believers, but they are being tempted to go back under the umbrella of Judaism. Thus, the warning passages would charge them to refrain from putting themselves back under the bondage of the Jewish religious system. Secondly, Others maintained that the recipients were Jews who were a mixed group. There were true believers and there were professors. That is, people who said they were believers, but they were really not. Therefore, in this view, the warning passages, these five warning sections, would be to those who were not really believers. 
In other words, they would receive the warnings of the author against lapsing back into Judaism, which would show that they really did not have faith in Christ to begin with. That, by the way, is the view of John MacArthur. Uh, MacArthur's very adamant in arguing that the book of Hebrews is written to believers except for the five warning passages. And they specifically are written to persons professing Christ, but not genuinely possessing Christ. My own view is a combination of the two. You say, well, you're wimping out. Well, maybe so, but I think this is the better way. It is possible that the warning passages were intended to apply to both believers and non-believers. And that the intent is to challenge both groups to move forward to Christ if they've never been converted and in Christ if they have been because his is indeed the superior way made by his perfect sacrifice upon the cross. And in that context, the warning passages would have a word of instruction to those who are believers as well as to those who are not believers. So that is the way that I would myself try to perhaps understand what is going on there. Look at page 11 then. Background to the material of Hebrews, a quick summation. It appears that these Jews are under persecution by Judaism, maybe Rome and Nero. Uh, They are second generation believers. Uh, False teachers are again harassing them. And clearly they are spiritually immature and they are slack in their worship attendance, as he makes clear in chapter 10 and verse 25. Major themes, he's telling them to progress, to move on by both hearing and heeding the word of faith. He tells them to do so is to step into the glory of the superiority of the person and work of Jesus Christ. He challenges them repeatedly to evaluate their present spiritual state and to move on to maturity. And indeed, he says that he has great expectations for their future as well as for the future of all believers. Clearly, without any debate. The key word in the book is the word better. Thirteen times in thirteen chapters, the author of Hebrews will tell us that Jesus Christ is in some way better than, better than the angels, better than the prophets, better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than Aaron, better than anything. And so why in the world would you go back when the better is in front of you in the person of Jesus Christ. Hence, he uses the word perfect. Most often, the word perfect means maturity. That word occurs 14 times. And then emphasizing the eternal nine times, being established where you stand eight times. Again, just to recount what I just said, there are these five warning passages. Exactly who are they for? One, believers in danger of losing their salvation. Now, of course, we're Baptist. Uh, that means we are people who believed in once saved, always saved. Uh, I don't like that particular nomenclature myself, although I do believe uh, in eternal security and the perseverance of the saint. I will tell you this. If Hebrews 6 is talking about someone who can lose their salvation, it makes it crystal clear that once you lose it, you can't get it back. In fact, it says it's impossible, whatever it is that you just lost, to ever get it back. And, of course, I personally... Know of no denomination that teaches that. I will note that Dale Moody, who taught at Southern Seminary for years, taught apostasy. And he taught that if you did lose it, you could not get it back. Now, I think he was wrong. But I at least think his interpretation of chapter 6 was more uh, palatable uh, and more uh, defensible than what you many times hear from, you know, 
those in the Methodist tradition or the Assembly of God tradition or the Nazarene tradition or the Episcopal tradition or the Lutheran tradition. You know, if you think about it, boys and girls, how many denominations really do believe in eternal security? Well, Baptists do. Uh, Presbyterians do. Uh, Evangelical free do. Mm, that's, that's Bible church, but that's really not a denomination. That's just kind of a particular kind of movement. There's not much more than Presbyterians, Baptists, uh, and uh, E-Free. There, there really is. Now, you may have some little small groups. When you're talking about mainline, big denominations, Catholics believe you can lose it. Lutherans believe you can lose it. Episcopalians believe you can lose it. Assemblies of God believe you can lose it. So we kind of stand unique in smaller company with our emphasis that once you're saved, you're always saved, not because of what you do, but as Hebrews 7.25 says, wherefore, he is able to save us to the uttermost. Those who come unto God by him, seeing what he ever lives to make intercession for you. Your security is not based in you. Your salvation from beginning to end is based in Christ. That's why that text I read a moment ago, Hebrews 12, he is the author and the finisher of faith. But some believe they are believers in danger of losing salvation. Some believe they are professing church members but not possessing church members. Some believe they are believers in danger of losing their earthly blessings and their heavenly rewards by turning back. This, by the way, is the view of David Allen, uh, the view of Warren Wiersbe, the view of Jerry Vines, uh, the view of Chuck Swindoll, the view of Charles Stanley. All five of them believe that the warning passages are written to believers who are in danger, not of losing their salvation, but in danger of losing rewards, even possibly to the point of losing their physical life. And for example, if you go back to the warning passage in chapter 3, you talk about there those who perished in the wilderness because of lack of faith. They did not get to go into the promised land. Now here's the question. All those people who died in the 40 years wandering. Did they all die and go to hell? Now, I wouldn't make that argument. You say, no, they all died and missed the promised land. That's right. So did they lose their eternal salvation? No. They lost their what? Earthly rewards. Now, you may disagree with the ultimate view, but that's exactly what happened there. Unless you're going to say that all those who did not go into the promised land, by the way, you got to include the big Mo in that too. Moses didn't go into the promised land either. He saw it, but big Mo didn't make it. So you're going to say he died and went to hell? I don't think so. So there are some really good reasons for holding that particular view. It actually is the one I lean toward, though, as I said a moment ago, I kind of combine two and three. But in a fourth view is Dr. Patterson's view. It's hypothetical. The warnings are there to say if you could lose it, you could never get it back. But since you can't lose it, move on. And that, by the way, is also the view of Millard Erickson in his Christian theology. So my point is simply this. I'm back to what I said at the very beginning. I'd much rather interpret Revelation than the book of Hebrews. Because these warning passages, I used to, used to tell folks, well, on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I held view number three. And on Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, I would hold view number four. And then on Sunday, I didn't hold any view because I was tired of thinking about it. And I tell you, it can rack your brain in trying to figure out exactly what is going on there. What we do know is this. He is telling these folks, don't you turn around and go back. You keep pressing forward into maturity that you will find only in Christ. Now that of which we will have no debate.
Page 12 uh, gives you a chart. I need to point out one thing for you. I caught it this afternoon looking at it again. You see at the middle of the page, at the bottom where it says chapter 13, verses 20 through 21, it ought to be all the way over to the right under that uh, line that doesn't have a verse under it. In other words, that is the last part of the last section. So if you would take 13, 20 through 21, draw a circle around it, and move it all the way back over to the far right where there is a line coming down that doesn't have a scripture under it, that's where that actually belongs. And so this just simply shows you the overarching structure of the work and how probably... The key to the book is found in chapter 4, 14 through 10, 18, and in particular, chapter 7, verse 1 through chapter uh, 7 and verse 28. And then I also included for you on page 13 what is a magnificent profile of Jesus based upon the book of Hebrews, at least 32 fantastic assertions about who our Lord is, all coming from the book of Hebrews, and then on page 14 and page 15, uh, this is a very strong book in terms of doctrine, and at least, again, 32 affirmations in terms of basic biblical truth and doctrine can be gleaned from the book of Hebrews, and so I thought you'd find those two things of interest as well. Finally, and I'll do it very fast this evening, look at page 16, and let me just show you how I think he does really bring to a climax his argument of pressing forward in terms of Christ as he challenges you and me to run in God's race. And I actually preached on this text earlier uh, last year at the seminary. And so if you go to the webpage uh, that we have, you could listen to this message in its fullness. You're going to get a five-minute synopsis. What does he say? Number one, be encouraged as you run. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great A cloud of witnesses. Who is this cloud of witnesses? It is the persons listed in chapter 11. There you have the great hall of faith. There you have those who demonstrate that without faith it's impossible to please God. There you find those who have gone ahead of us, who have gone before us, and they are there as a great source of encouragement for you and for me to stay in it And to run in God's race. If you think about dropping out, if you think about turning around, if you think about throwing in the towel, he says, look back to these great men and women of faith and they will encourage you. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, earthly winners and heavenly winners. Secondly, focus on the essentials as you run. And there are three of them also in verse 1. First of all, you've got to run cleanly. Let us lay aside every weight. In the context, it is Jewish ritualism. Uh, In the context, it is the old sacrificial system. In the context, it is going back to your former way of life where you actually thought you could earn your way into heaven. The author of Hebrews says, no. Those things are weights. They slow you down. They weigh you down. In fact, they can stop you in your tracks. They are not helping you run in this race of faith. It's a race of faith, not a race of works. So you've got to lay aside every weight. Secondly, the sin which so easily ensnares or entangles us. And I believe because of the context. The sin that ensnares us is the sin of unbelief. Because Hebrews 11 is before Hebrews 12, I don't agree with those teachers who say, well, you know, we all have our own individual, the sin. 
which ensnares us. Some of you, it's, it's a filthy thought life. Some of you, it's a bad temper. Some of you, it's laziness. Some of you, it's gluttony. Some of you, and on and on they go. I don't agree with that. I think all those things are bad. But I think the sin, which is like the octopus of the Christian life, is the sin of unbelief. So you've got to run cleanly, lay aside every weight. Confidently, the sin which so easily ensnares. And consistency, let us run with endurance. The race is set before us. And I would note that the key word to Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, is the word endurance. It occurs in verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3. So whatever he's saying, he's saying to you and to me, you've got to run this race with patience, with steadfastness, with consistency, with endurance. And as I've said previously, I think he's using the imagery of the marathon. And I think what he's saying to all of us is that the Christian race is a long Distance race. It's not a sprinter's race. It's not an intermediate distance race. It's a marathon. And therefore, you've got to have the mindset that I'm in this for the long haul, the long distance, 26 miles, 385 yards. That is a long, long, long race. I know from experience I ran one in 1980. Number three, as you run the race, you follow the example. And in chapter 12, verse 2 and verse 3, he gives us the penultimate example, the greatest example, the example of Jesus. Look at it and we'll close. Looking unto Jesus. The word means to gaze at, to lock your eyes on to. Lock your eyes on Jesus. Why? Well, he's the author. He begins it. He is the finisher. He completes it of our faith. And actually the word our doesn't belong. It's in italics. He is the author and finisher of faith. In other words, your faith experience from beginning to end, it's almost like Romans 1, 16 and 17, from beginning to end, your experience of faith in the race is the result of the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And then don't miss this. He says Christ is our example, right? Did he run in a race? Yes. Well, where did his race take him? To a cross. Look at it. Who for the joy... That was, now mark the next words, set before him. You say, why did you say mark those words? Look at the last three words, last four words of verse 1. The race that is what? Set before us. Just as we have a race set before us, he had a race set before him. Where did his race take him? To a cross. All right. Facing the cross. Enduring the cross, did he throw in the towel? Did he drop out of the race? Did he go to the sideline? No. He despised the shame of it. Why? Because, number one, he knew it would bring glory to his father. Number two, he knew it would bring your salvation and mine. And so, thinking of the pain, the suffering, the sorrow, he didn't quit. He despised the shame of it. The trial the trouble, the difficulty, he despised it. He did not let it defeat him. And instead, for the joy that was before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And look at the end. Oh, now he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Look at where God's race ended up for his son. Then he says, it gets very personal. You look at him, you think about him. Verse 3, consider him. It means to, to meditate. We get our word analyze from it. Analyze him. Meditate over him. Think upon him. 
who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Why should I think about him? So that you will not become weary and discouraged in your souls. I've often said to people when I've been counseling those that were struggling, and many times I've had students that have said to me, you know, I, I'm thinking about leaving school. I'm thinking about going home. I, I'm just tired. I'm fatigued. I'm worn down. And I and understand that. I, I don't in any, many, in any way uh, mean to uh, minimize that. I, I have been there myself. But I'll often say to them, well, before you do, let me encourage you to go home, get alone, get your Bible, And just read again through Matthew chapter 26 and 27. Just read again through Mark 14 and 15. Just read again through Luke 22 and 23. Just read again through John 18 and 19 and 20. And I promise you, the things of this world will go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. I know in my own life, when I have had times of disappointment and discouragement and kind of a loss of energy, I just go back to the cross and to what Jesus suffered for me. And it's amazing how the things I'm going through begin to look kind of not so bad in light of what he endured and suffered for me. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus then as we run in the race. Let's pray. Father. Thank you so much for this incredible book. Uh, Perhaps in the uh, uh, months and weeks and years ahead, you'll give us the chance to study it in more detail. I imagine we could stay here a long, long time because it is a book that uh, plums the depths of the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ. And, Lord, we ought to stay a while and enjoy that. But may we this night understand that the book of Hebrews challenges us to press on to maturity And that we press on by fixing our eyes and our mind on Jesus, who indeed is sufficient to get us home, to get us to the finish line, that we might indeed run the race in a way that is pleasing to you. Bless every man and woman then here tonight and give them that strength and that energy as they look to Christ to stay in the race and to run well for your honor and for your praise. I ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.